Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. So recently I discovered something particularly unwelcome. Marie Keyworth is a 35 year old who lives in South London with her husband and two kids. She's also our show's producer. Our two-year fixed-rate mortgage was running out. One thing to note here, if you're an American, is that mortgages in the UK work differently than they do in the US, where 30-year fixed-rate mortgages are much more common. You'll get a mortgage, but the interest rate will only be fixed for a short period, normally two, three or five years. So we've just applied for a new mortgage, and because rates have started to rise, and it's still unclear to me at least how far they'll have to go to tame inflation... We thought we should protect ourselves from that by going for a five-year fixed rate. Seems logical. So we've locked in how much we'll be paying for the next five years, which is £200 more per month to live in the same house. We were both pretty horrified. And I thought I was personally responsible because I've recently left my job to become self-employed. So I rang our mortgage broker to ask if our higher interest rate was because of me messing things up with my change of circumstances. And she assured me that it had absolutely nothing to do with that and everything to do with the higher interest rates across the banking system. In other words, it's not just Marie. Everyone who's looking to buy a house or needs to get a new mortgage in the UK is confronting the same reality. And that made me feel a bit better. But it didn't solve the problem of having to find £200 extra a month to pay for our house. Things are already pretty tight, so we've taken one of our kids out of nursery one day a week to save money there. And we're having to have stern words with ourselves, like, do you really need to buy that coffee when you can make it at home? I think in the end it'll come down to having less disposable income to spend on things that are nice to have rather than essential. And it's not just the UK either. Mortgage rates are rising all over the world. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Alice Fulwood. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Samaya Keynes. And in this week's show, the impact of rising mortgage rates around the world. We'll examine if the American housing market was in a bubble and if that's now bursting. The type of acceleration in house prices that we've seen over the past two years is unprecedented. It has been accelerating quarter after quarter since mid-2020. And we'll go to Norway, which, compared to other rich countries, has a housing market that is particularly exposed to rising rates. People are so used to the government and the system making everything work for them, so I think we're not prepared for the situation that could come. We'll explore who else is most exposed to this sudden rate shift. Prices appear to be most sensitive to rate rises in Australia, New Zealand, Canada and in some of the Nordic countries. And we'll ask whether it's time to start worrying about another housing crash. Hello, Mike and Sumeya. Hello. Hello. You're finally back and settled in the US. Yes, I had three weeks of holiday and then COVID, but now I'm back in full strength. So uh, you forced me to take the lead on this week's episode. Yeah, this is our wedding present to you. That and, and several weeks of roasting you on the podcast. This week's episode is the first in a series. We're going to be looking at, as Mike put it, 
Who is swimming naked when interest rates rise as suddenly and sharply as they have? So just to be clear, I don't think that's that's my official quote. I think people usually attribute it to, to Warren Buffett, although I don't think he actually said it either. But it basically means when market conditions get particularly difficult, it becomes much more obvious who hasn't prepared for that eventuality, who's too indebted or too overextended in other ways, who's vulnerable, basically. Um, uh, those are the guys who are the proverbial naked swimmers. We decided to focus on housing first. Right. And that's partly because it's just astonishing how quickly mortgage rates are rising. In the US, the rate for a 30-year fixed mortgage jumped from 5.2% to 5.8% over the course of a single week, uh, from June 9th to June 16th. And that is the steepest increase in nearly 40 years. That is painful. Yes, and you can do the maths. If you had a $100,000 deposit and wanted to pay about $3,000 a month in January in the US, you could buy a house worth $850,000. Now you can buy one worth just $600,000. Right, and then that's just in America. Rates here in Britain have also jumped a lot, as we just heard from Marie. That's not fun for people trying to take out new mortgages or refinancing existing ones. And it's also no fun for people like me trying to sell and finding that buyers are just not that interested. And most of all, that's a big problem for the podcast because it means the recordings are continually interrupted by people leaving the pub directly outside of your flat. Anyway, I think we should focus on America's housing market first, partly because the Fed has just raised its target interest rate by a monster 75 basis point increment. And partly because thanks to the housing crash in 2008, the American housing market is always where people go looking for trouble first. And we should mention here that most mortgages in America aren't tied to the federal funds rate directly. That's the Fed's target interest rate. So they track more closely whatever the prevailing interest rate is in the market for mortgage-backed securities, which typically closely follow whatever's happening in the Treasury market. Precisely, which means that those mortgage rates reflect expectations about future Fed decisions as well as wherever the Fed rate is right now. And investors think the Fed is going to keep raising rates quickly. They're expecting the Fed fund rates to end the year at 3.7%, a full two percentage points higher than it is now. Changing expectations are one reason mortgage rates have risen so dramatically. And another is, well, something you spoke about with our first guest. That's right. I rang up Enrique Martinez-Garcia. He's a senior economist at the Dallas Federal Reserve. And the Dallas Fed is known for its research on the American housing market. So I was especially curious to hear what he thought was happening. I've uh, spent uh, most of my career with the Federal Reserve, arriving in Dallas in 2007, and I guess that year was uh, very important in in housing. Certainly, it did affect a lot my thinking about housing and uh, housing dynamics, and uh, I've been uh, spending a lot of time and putting a lot of thought into that since then. You know, the housing market over the past two years has been pretty frantic. So you have house prices 38% higher than they were in January of 2020. You hear stories of buyers routinely being in bidding wars with a dozen other people, making offers over asking, making offers above the bank's appraised value, people waiving inspections and contingencies, all of this kind of madness. And I guess a lot of people have argued through all of this that this was a reflection in some way of, of fundamental um, dynamics, you know, millennials entering peak homeownership years, too little housing supply, 
and the shift towards remote work. Um, but in March this year, you, along with your co-authors, Jared Coulter, Valerie Grossman, Peter Phillips and Xu Ping Shi, published a paper arguing that a housing bubble might be brewing in America. So what evidence did you find uh, that convinced you of that? Okay, long story short is the type of acceleration in house prices that we've seen, in particular in the U.S., but this phenomenon can be seen in other countries as well, over the past two years is unprecedented. It's not just that by the first quarter of 2022, we are uh, posting the highest two-year growth rate on record for the U.S., close to to 30% increase in nominal house prices, is the fact that it has been accelerating quarter after quarter since mid-2020. And it's very difficult to reconcile that kind of explosive behavior with any of the usual explanations. So the primary explanation that is left is expectations. And there are different terms that are thrown in this. In in the more academic literature, people talk about the exuberant behavior of agents. But in practice, is the belief that if these house prices continue at the rate I'm seeing, if I don't get into the market right now, I'm going to be priced out. So I better move now before it's too late. And that demand that comes in for fear of missing out it's actually making prices go fast right now in a sort of self-fulfilling type of prophecy that while it lasts, it generates dynamics that very much resemble what we've seen, uh, the type of explosive growth that we've seen in the US. So that's the sort of evidence. We've just seen mortgage rates climb, you know, one of the biggest increases week on week um, ever to sort of new highs of uh, 5.78%. Could you explain the impact you expect higher interest rates to have on the housing market, in particular, how quickly they've climbed this year and how effective that might be at cooling things down? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to give you, uh, if, if you allow me uh, the, the opportunity, I'm going to give you uh, two scenarios. The one that I would think is the uh, preferred scenario or the, the, the one that is was most likely by institutions in the U.S. in particular. So in this scenario, the Fed is committed to quell inflation and is committed to raise interest rates as much as necessary. Why? Because the house price growth is driving asking rents in the U.S., very high. Uh, the last numbers that we have, for instance, from Zillow, asking rents are up to 15%. And that, with a lag, as new leases turn over, it's going to feed into the rent component in the CPI. So cooling the housing market is almost a precondition to be able to tame inflation. It's going to take some of the hit of one of the biggest components of the price increase in, in, in recent months. And what's the second scenario? The second part of the story, and where it gets uh, more complicated for the Fed, is what I would describe as as the possibility of a negative wealth effect. One of the variables that I look very closely is the mortgage debt service payment as a share of uh, personal disposable income. In 2021, it was at a historical low, between 3.5%, 4% of personal disposable uh, income was being spent on uh, mortgage debt services. Raising interest rates and mortgages uh, have gone from 3% uh, a few months ago to close to 6%. Now, it's going to put pressure on these 
payments, uh, definitely. But we are still well below the historical average of about 5.5% and well below the 7% that was reached at the peak of the previous boom. So the prospect of there having been a huge run-up in housing wealth and now there being higher rates and this prospect of a potential correction, that will remind a lot of people of 2007. You've mentioned 2007 yourself. Um, Are we in the same situation now? Is that the kind of correction that you are expecting, or how are things different this time? Things are different in, 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 in a couple of ways, at least, probably more, but let, let me highlight just a couple of things. One of the things that uh, is significantly different is when we look at the signs of the housing market, the current uh, situation resembles a lot more the early stages of the previous bubble than the final stages of the boom around 2007. So one key difference is that we are acting to take some of the heat out of the market a lot earlier than last time. We have also learned some of the painful lessons that we learned from the previous crisis. And the situation of the balance sheet of households right now is in better shape than it was in the uh, in the early mid-2000s. And then the final thing I will mention is we are having these conversations. And this is not a trivial thing. Back in the day, I remember in the early 2000s and mid-2000s, this was not even uh, an issue. Everybody was excited about the buoyance of the market and, and almost believed like a religious matter, <laughs> a religious article of faith that it will continue this way. Now we are challenging that narrative. So obviously your focus is on America and the American housing market, uh, but the boom in house prices has been global and most economies are now facing higher interest rates as well. And the US market is is quite unusual uh, in some ways, in particular the prevalence of fixed rate mortgages here. So are you more worried about these dynamics in, in other nations where there are sort of more people on flexible rate mortgages or, or different uh, sort of housing market setups um, than you are in the US? Or how do you think about how America fits internationally? Let me say uh, one thing about the US in particular. Uh, I think one of the uh, concerns that people have about the US experience is that it can be the first domino and have ripple effects. So uh, it's the, the old saying that if the US sneezes, Europe catches a cold story, but adapted to the housing market. And there is concern that the spillovers from the US might be that people are starting to rethink their investments elsewhere. And we've seen that a lot of countries have been experiencing similar uh, patterns of explosive behavior or exuberant behavior in their house prices over the past two years. And some of them have more vulnerabilities. So what that suggests to us is that there is a risk of a coordinated uh, correction. Yeah, so you might not have the same sort of causes of the crisis as you did in 2007, 2008, but the idea of a coordinated sort of global slowdown or correction in housing uh, is still pretty daunting. With that in mind, just to sort of, I guess, fun, depending on your perspective, if you were in the market, how would you be feeling right now? Okay, let me let me start with a caveat, and is that uh, as uh, 
Um, if this was a private conversation, I might give you a more candid assessment, but being presented as uh, a senior economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, I don't want anybody to think that the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas is giving uh, investment advice. Starting with that caveat, I think one of the challenges that a lot of people are starting to find uh, that that most people in the situation of trying to decide whether to buy a house uh, will face can be summarized like this. Okay, do I believe that it's worthwhile to wait a little longer because house prices are going to correct, even if that means I have to pay higher mortgage rates? Or does it pay off for me to take the higher prices now, but secure uh, lower rates before they go even higher than they are going now. So I think a lot of the thinking into making decisions for yourself right now will have to involve your assessment of of those scenarios. And I'll leave it at that. Sorry, I cannot be more uh, precise. No, I couldn't have expected anything more. With the caveat, here are some scenarios to think about is um, is precisely what an academic economist should respond to that question. So uh, thank you so much um, for indulging me. And thank you for your time, Enrique. That was really insightful. Thank you so much, Alice. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's really interesting thinking again about like mortgage servicing against disposable incomes because it's this bit of housing policy and and sort of housing economics that I certainly haven't spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, I, you know, I think most people relatively close to my age who've been who've been thinking about uh, these issues for maybe the last decade or so, they're thinking about the size of deposits and the absolute price of houses because mortgage financing has been the sort of relatively cheap and easy side of that. And it's interesting seeing that come back in a way that you haven't seen for quite a while now. I guess we should also point out, though, that we're not fully back into that world, right? Um, Enrique was saying that mortgage debt service payments as a share of personal disposable income were still below the, the peak of the previous boom. So the scary clouds are still a little bit further away in the distance. Yes, but that is just in America, which is what Enrique focuses on. After the break, we are going to look at whether when America sneezes, the rest of the world's housing market catch a cold. But before that, our favourite part of the show, where we try to convince you to take out a subscription to The Economist. Yes, subscribers will be able to read Alice's piece on America's housing market, which goes even deeper than this podcast episode. And if any listeners were particularly interested in the episode we did a few weeks back looking at Germany's energy sector and its aversion to nuclear power, this week's edition is going to be jam-packed with uh, content on the subject of nuclear power in Europe and energy in general. I've also got a piece looking at public sector pay in Britain, which is a big subject since, at least as of this recording, most of our colleagues can't get into the London office due to the country's biggest transport strike in 30 years. Listeners can get a great introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. If you're already a subscriber, first, thank you very much. Second, you can sign up to our weekly newsletter at economist.com slash newsletters. So polite. Both of these links are in the notes to this episode. Hold up. 
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Now, as we mentioned, Enrique was, as would be expected from an economist at the Dallas Federal Reserve, very focused on America's housing market. But the US isn't the only place where interest rates have been rising. One place that's particularly exposed is a country that we usually, in the podcast team at least, like to hold up as a beacon. Which is Singapore, right? No, Mike, that is not this episode. No, of course it is Norway. And conveniently enough, one of our producers on our sister podcast, The Intelligence, John Joe Devlin, recently relocated from London to Oslo. So we sent him to find out just what's happening. Do you like this uh, massive uh, fireplace? Yeah, we do. We have a fireplace at our apartment now. Yeah. Just like this. And just like this. Yeah. And it uh, has kept warming us through the winter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Saving us at least some money. Yeah. Wow. And in Norway, we spend so much time inside, right? So it's important that it's like cozy. Yeah. And, yeah. I found Marcus Pedersen and Guru Mittling at an open house in central Oslo, standing in front of a gargantuan cast iron stovepipe. Both were looking to take their first step onto the property ladder in a country that has the highest rate of home ownership in Europe. And despite the rising cost of living and the threat of interest rate hikes, Marcus and Guro were keen to secure as big a loan as they could. And it's really important for us. We are stressing about it. Yeah, we are stressing about it. We are 26 years old and we feel like we have to buy our own apartment. Yeah. I know it's the best uh, investment for us to keep saving instead of buying and paying down it others' loans. Yeah. For Norwegians young and old, it seems the benefit of rising property prices outweigh the risks of debt. So the prices are um, it's getting higher and I know that if I buy something in Oslo right now, it will give me a benefit if I sell it in like two years. Okay. I, yeah, I believe in that. Mm. And for years, that belief has been rewarded. Most think of Norway as a high-tax country, and in many respects, that's true. This Scandinavian nation has wealth taxes, a steeply progressive income tax, and duties on alcohol that mean the starting price of a beer here is about $11. But in housing, things are a little different. Norway has no national property tax, few levies on rental income, and there's no inheritance tax either. Today, more than four out of five Norwegians own their own home, and with that, they have the highest levels of personal debt in the world. And most of that debt is in housing. When you buy your first home in Norway, you can uh, the bank can help you, so you only pay interest for the first three to five years. I met Tore Nilsen at the same open house. She told me how a number of her friends had managed to buy in the capital in their mid-twenties. So if you only pay interest and not paying on the actual loan, you can get away with a pretty small amount per month. So that helps a lot of people into the, to the market. And if you ma- uh, manage to pay down, you know the prices are going to go up, so it's no risk. If you rent, all the money just goes out the window and you never get anything in return. And the longer you wait, everyone knows that the longer you wait, the harder it's going to get to get into the market. But this fear of missing out can come back to bite buyers when interest rates rise. But last time we had like an, an increase in interest, some of my friends were struggling. That was back in 2010. Yeah. 
And then it was pretty rough for a lot of people. And the thing is, banks in Norway are encouraged to lend to would-be buyers. In fact, our analysis showed that bank loans make up more than a third of banks' total assets in the country. That has created some perverse incentives. In a nearby square, I met Amir Kadir Khan, who was settling into his new home that he'd moved into just two months ago. So I know a lot of people are living in the Oslo area, and you know it's a kind of uh, thing they talk about. Yeah, if you get the loan uh, approved by one bank, all the other banks will compete for it. So give you better conditions, they'll give you more loan. So I had the same case. So uh, one bank was giving me some amount, and I went. I just sent an application. This is my requirement. This is my equity, and this is my income, and so on and so on. All the conditions you prefer, and then every day you get better until like all the banks in the Norway have competed, and then you are as a king. You can choose whichever bank you would go with. So it's very easy to get like maxed out on your loan. So whilst many other countries have decreased their debt since 2008, Norwegians have continued to increase theirs. Debt growth here has exceeded income growth every year since the 1990s, and that worries people like Hanna Gitmark, the deputy chair of Agenda, an Oslo-based think tank focused on inequality. She thinks most Norwegians aren't prepared for rising interest rates. It could become a huge problem, and then I think that people are so used to the government and the system making everything work for them. So I think we're not prepared for the situation that could come. And it's only 30 years since the last time we had a huge crash, but that's how it is. And I think people forget the crisis straight away and they don't, they, and then the next one, you don't see it until you're in it. So we'll see. But back at the open house, the discussion wasn't about mortgage rates or debt to GDP ratios. It was about ceilings. <laughs> uh, first impressions? Uh, I like the part. Yeah, really yeah, nice. It's, it's, it's big. You got a potential. You got the ceilings in the secretary. It's a calm area. Yeah. The bedroom in a backyard. And That's the balcony. Cool. Yeah. So I think it like, ticks off quite some of the boxes we're looking for. Absolutely. So that's really interesting. Essentially, the Norwegian government and the banking system together have basically encouraged people both to buy property and to keep pretty hefty mortgages going. Right. And our colleague Vinjeru Makandawire has been looking at other countries, not just Norway, whose housing markets are particularly vulnerable to rate increases. Hi, Vinjeru. Welcome to Money Talks. Hi, guys. Lovely to be here. It's lovely to have you. You recently wrote a piece for the paper in which you identified some potential sources of weakness in various global housing market kind of metrics that might indicate which uh, nations or housing markets might be in the most trouble when interest rates rise. So could you just talk us through some of those metrics and which ones you think are the most important in terms of where the fallout in housing markets might be worst? Sure. So... So we identified a couple of metrics that show that some housing markets seem set for more pain than others, um, and it varies by country. The first one we looked at was price increases since the start of the pandemic. And the other metrics we looked at were the share of homeowners with mortgages and the number of variable rate mortgages instead of fixed rate loans, as well as the amount of debt taken on by households. 
And combined, all of these things will determine how squeezed households in these different countries might be once mortgage payments start to increase. So basically, if you have a really high share of homeowners in your housing market, you have lots of variable rate mortgages and you have lots of debt taken on by households, you're probably going to fare worse as interest rates rise. Exactly. Prices appear to be most sensitive to rate rises in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and in some of the Nordic countries. And these markets have a few things in common, including higher levels of mortgage debt per household, as well as relatively high shares of variable rates rather than fixed rates. Now, America, which bore the brunt of the fallout from the subprime lending crisis, actually appears better insulated than many large economies. Borrowers and lenders there have become more cautious since 2009, and fixed rates are also much more popular than variable rates. In Britain and France, housing markets there will fare better in the short term, but they look slightly more exposed if rates continue to rise. And by contrast, uh, property in Germany, Switzerland, And parts of southern, central, and eastern Europe appear as less vulnerable simply because more people either own their homes outright or they rent, which is predominantly the case for Germany and Switzerland. So one of the things that also stands out when I sort of listen to that list of countries that that are looking a little bit more worrying now is that they're all countries that seemed to come out of sort of 2007 to nine pretty well, right? It, it seems like there's, there's a sort of, there's the fact that their banking systems weren't massively imperiled, that they didn't have a terrible time for sort of the five years after the global financial crisis. They seem to have built up just so much more leverage. Is it in part as a result of doing relatively well over that sort of period, maybe like 10, five to 10 years ago? Yeah, so it's it's a combination of that as well as the amount of savings that households amassed uh, during the pandemic. At the same time, it's worth bearing in mind that many of these households are saddled with more debt than ever. In Australia, for example, homeowners' average debt as a share of income has ballooned to 150%. Canada's central bank has issued a warning about high levels of household debt, and financial regulators in Europe are equally worried about countries like Denmark, Norway, and Sweden, as well as Luxembourg and the Netherlands. Um, And that will determine just how squeezed households will be once mortgage payments start to increase. And we were just hearing about Norway's property sector, and your report found that other Scandinavian countries, Sweden, Denmark, Finland, are also particularly exposed. Why is that? Yeah, I mean, I think the main reason is just how established the mortgage markets are in these countries compared to other countries. So people have been taking out mortgages in countries like Norway and Denmark for far longer than in uh, Central and Eastern Europe, for example, where people are more likely to own their homes outright. I think where it gets really interesting is in the banking sector. Um, And we raised that in our piece. In Norway and Sweden, housing loans make up more than a third of banks' total assets. And in Denmark, they actually account for nearly 50% of lenders' books. 
And so sharp falls in house prices in these markets could trigger huge losses in the banking sector. It always sort of reminds me of uh, Milton Friedman, where he was describing uh, how monetary policy works with what he definitely did call long and variable lags. So basically, you raise or cut interest rates, and the, the effect of that feeds through on sort of an uncertain time frame. It's really interesting to me how this is going to feed through incredibly quickly in some of these places that you've identified. And interest rates are one of the only levers that policymakers can use to try and slow down the housing market so that you don't have this runaway price growth anymore. For my piece this week, I spoke to Lindsay Garcia, who is a realtor in Miami. She said that she had two buyers who'd agreed on Monday to buy houses, and by Friday, they couldn't afford them anymore. I mean, I have already two buyers that back off from their offers that were accepted uh, because the, the rates are, are going to change. They didn't lock the, 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 the rates. We just went into the contract this week, and they both canceled one yesterday and one today because they spoke with their loan officers and the mortgage payment and then what they're required to closing costs if they want to buy, point, buy points and, and reduce the mortgage payment was something that they couldn't afford. But Vingero, given all of this and given your tour of global housing markets, if you were to buy a house now, which country would you want to buy one in? I was I was literally about to make a joke about you must get loads of people asking you where to, and it must be so annoying. <laughs> um okay, where where would I buy hmm where would I buy a home? That's a good question. So in New Zealand, the average home could set you back more than one million New Zealand dollars. So I think it'd be pretty cool to own a home there just because you you could be a millionaire essentially in New Zealand just just by owning a home. So it'd be maybe maybe nice to own one, but but not so enjoyable to purchase one. So it'd be nice to be gifted a home in New Zealand. That would be great. Thank you so much, Jerry. Thank you for joining Money Talks. Thank you for having me. So it's it's interesting to listen to Vingero and Enrique sort of one after the other, because Vingero's done this sort of rigorous analysis of which housing markets are most exposed to rising interest rates. And so, you know, if interest rates rise the same amount in all nations, then that will be a sort of good guide to where housing markets will be sort of most vulnerable. But the thing that I thought was really interesting from what Enrique was saying is that it's not that you're looking for endogenous problems in housing markets this time around. It's not that there have been really lax lending standards and there's been loads of dodgy sort of mortgage making and stuff that means that there are latent underlying problems in the housing markets that will be exposed as rates rise. The problem this time around is hidden in much plainer sight. It's just that prices have gone up so much, so quickly, um, in a way that he thinks might be unsustainable. And That is causing the problem that policymakers have to deal with now. It's causing very high housing cost inflation, very high rent inflation. And so what is going to happen now is not that we're going to uncover necessarily loads of latent underlying issues in the housing market. It's that policymakers have to get prices to cool down enough that they solve their inflation problems. So this housing crash will be engineered rather than uncovered. Yeah, I think another way of of looking at this question of where is most vulnerable to rising interest rates could be where is monetary policy operating through the housing market most effectively? 
if you're in a country like the US, where lots and lots of mortgages are just locked in in, in decade-long contracts, then high interest rates isn't going to translate into uh, less money for, for spending on other things because households have their previous mortgage. They're, they're not affected. Um, and so, you know, I guess the, the, the way to look at it is in, in some of those European countries where higher rates are, are feeding through to household spending much more quickly. Um, that means that interest rate policy could have a much faster effect, could be much more effective, and and potentially an inflation problem could be managed much more quickly, and that might have wider benefits. Okay, great. Well, it sounds like it's just about time to do our statistics of the week. I would be delighted. My statistic is 2.3, which is the average number of days per week that employers planned for people to be working from home once the pandemic is over. Is the pandemic over now? It's a good question. I think that the the other question from that is, have you ever spent 0.7 of a day at home? Yes. There's a good few hours of working in the office and then there's going home and sitting on my sofa with my cats and doing a few more hours productive work work there. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Alice, have you got an ideal uh, to the single decimal point number of days to spend in the office a week? I mean, probably zero. No, I'm joking. I obviously love to come <laughs> hang out with you guys. <laughs> yeah, our boss, our boss has listened to the podcast, by the way, just to, just to make clear. Um, so my, mine is five. Mine is five. Six, sometimes. Six, <laughs> my, yeah, six my, I was going to say seven. Seven days a week is the appropriate yeah, number of exactly, days spent in the, week, exactly. in the office. It's, right, yeah. Okay, you show us. Um, well, my 2.3 days uh, on average compares to 1.6, which was the expectation in January 2021. Uh, so, you know, relative to, say, year and a half ago or so, employers have been massively revising up their expectations of how much their employees are going to work from home. So it looks like there's been a bit of a struggle and employees have been winning. And you two have been losing. (laughs) Cool. Good for employees. I've decided to make a return to doing stats that are completely unrelated to finance, business or economics. And my stat of the week is 300 kilograms, which is the weight of the largest ever freshwater fish that was caught in the Mekong River in Cambodia. Everyone in Cambodia is very excited about this because people have worried about the health of the Mekong River for uh, many years in terms of pollution and, and other environmental concerns. But the presence of this massive fish has cheered them all up. Is it possible that other life in the river was being slightly undermined by this massive fish eating them all? So my statistic, depending on how you look at it, is either 10.9 trillion or 81 billion. The first figure is in Japanese yen and the second is in US dollars. Those are the amounts of securities, government bonds that the Bank of Japan bought last week, um, while the rest of the world is stepping back from sort of easy monetary policy and quantitative easing and central banks are raising interest rates. The Bank of Japan is sticking to its guns. It's continuing to do quantitative easing. And because of the rise in inflation, it's having to do a lot more to keep government bond yields down. Um, I think it's going to be really interesting and something people should keep an eye on over the next few weeks and months. Our thanks this week to Enrique Martinez-Garcia and Lindsay Garcia. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Or write to us, especially with your uh, statistics, just for me at podcasts at economist.com. Today's show was produced by In Search of a Mortgage, Marie Keyworth. 
Our sound engineer is Nico Ralfast. Our editor is Kim Gittelson. I'm Alice Forward. I'm Samaya Keynes. I'm Mike Bird. And this is The Economist. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.